someone could be a billionaire or multimillionaire already have a lot of money and still look to hack an environment. That's because of the neurological motivation and, and the motivation born out of an ideological motive, which is usually thrill-seeking behavior or it's ego. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Nano Community Tech, a voice for technology enthusiasts everywhere. My name is Sandeep Johal. My guest is Gabe Marzano, a cybersecurity specialist. Gabe began her journey in professional football with Perth Glory, Brisbane Raw, and then Melbourne Victory. She became the first female to qualify as, the, as an Army work diver in the Australian Defence Force. Subsequently, she moved to cybersecurity in various leadership roles. She co-hosts the Dark Mode podcast, which explores how technology improves our lives. I had the opportunity to sit down with Gabe to explore cybersecurity, its broad types, and the motivation behind the perpetrators. Gabe Marzano, great to have you on the show. Welcome. Thanks, Andeep. Great to be here. Very excited about our conversation. Gabe, you have a colorful background in a number of areas. You are a cybersecurity professional now, and you've got some great insights to share um, with how the world approaches cybersecurity and possibly to sh- uh, how the world will approach cybersecurity in the next you know, generation of issues and problems that, that the world might have. Now, let's get stuck into the uh, past first. Tell us a little bit more about your background and how you got into cybersecurity. Yeah, sure thing. So the origin story goes... Grew up in North Queensland, in the regional part of Australia. And at 18, I joined the Army. I was a combat engineering officer there and I was a scuba diver, which is basically building things or blowing things up. So a lot of fun. Played a few years of professional soccer as well, thanks to the Italian heritage. Uh, And I've transitioned out of the Army in the last four or five years into a cybersecurity role at Palo Alto Networks. So taking really that national security heritage and applying it into the corporate world from a cybersecurity lens and just really enjoying sort of mixing all of my past experiences and interests now into what I'm doing day to day. Where does the cybersecurity piece sit <laughs> in that? <laughs> from football, tell us, tell yeah. us how you went from, from scoring goals to then getting on to uh, cybersecurity and getting into this professionally as the next step. Yeah, for sure. It can be a bit confusing because you think about professional soccer and you think, wow, that, that's a lot, right? But in the in the women's professional league in Australia, it's more of a semi-professional type of structure and standard. And so therefore, the time commitment is still a lot week to week, but the professional season had typically been played over November three to February type period, three to four month long seasons. And I did manage to play professionally whilst I was serving in the army. The army granted, they were kind enough to grant me elite sports person status. And so, you know, I've got some extra days of leave and this type of thing, but it did coincide with a reduced tempo period over Christmas. And so I was able to manage both pretty well over the the three years that I played concurrently to to the army career. I was very much sort of this dual athlete, I suppose, um, managing a career and playing professional sport, but yeah, it was interesting times, like the Women's League, you know, my first contract I signed for $500 for the season. It's like you'd never even imagine, right? And since I was involved in the collective bargaining agreement, the first one for the Women's A-League, and that then introduced minimum pay. 
to about $15,000 for the season. And it's since actually been progressed and, and it's growing. And you would be familiar with things in the media around women's sport really growing and the profile becoming bigger. And rightfully so, right? Australia and New Zealand's actually hosting the Women's World Cup next year. Definitely getting a few corporate boxes to that. But yeah, it's just like interesting time of my life and potentially not an immediate translation I would have ever thought from playing professional soccer into cyber. But when I transitioned out of the army, I got really interested in tech, technology and business. And so my curiosity has sort of brought me into the cybersecurity profession. And I've really just leveraged my unique profiling and almost the psychometric interest areas that lead me into being a practitioner in cybersecurity. And I'm very passionate about that now. Probably a newer discovery, not something I initially ever pointed the compass at, but yeah, it's just absolutely right up my alley and everything that I could really dream of in a career itself. It's quite, it, again, it's quite a transition, but also I can see now the, the way that the transition happened was through, I guess, the army. And yep. the army is a, a defensive um, uh, ethos. And that then brings, lends itself to the thinking, I suppose, in, in the cybersecurity world which is also part of um, that, that, I guess, defense structure. Um, and I think the for, for those listeners who are not familiar with the, the ins and outs of cybersecurity, perhaps give us a bit of an overview of what cybersecurity actually is. Yeah, for sure. Well, fundamentally, it's about protecting the digital economy. It's about securing and having safe harbors in any sort of digital interface you know, when you log in at work, you want to be protected as a user. That data needs to be protected. Importantly, the corporate and organizational intellectual property, you want that to be protected. There's a lot of things hitting the news around compromises and breaches and ransomware. So cybersecurity is really, as you mentioned, Sandeep, it's that defensive mechanism towards protecting the digital community really at its highest level. And that's very important. It's, it's been an important um, part of any kind of digital interaction for a while now, but especially in this day and age, I mean, we've, we hear so much um, around about, uh, you know, all from credit cards and identities being stolen, um, logins being, uh, being hacked. Uh, also, you know, people, organizations that you work for will tell you never put your password on a sticky note on your, on your computer and that sort of thing. So, some of it sounds pretty, you know, technologically involved, but other times it's just, it could just be carelessness and gullibility and, and, and things like that. So do, what, what have you observed as some of the more, I guess, notable instances of cybersecurity breaches? Oh, gosh. I mean, they can vary few and far between. I would say, though, breaches don't really need to be that sophisticated because, if you think about cybersecurity, it's a combination of technology and the users and the people element to it. And a lot of the times it's from that exact element that you mentioned, Sandeep, around you know, a bit more vulnerability from a user perspective. Phishing emails, for example, or sort of putting pressure on a user to act or create an activity that provides an exploitation and that's something that allows access inadvertently to a bad actor. But then you can look all the way up the spectrum to even 
see the proliferation of things like ransomware as a service that's being posted on the dark web, right? And you've got these organized criminal groups acting in that type of layer of the internet. And that's, you know, that, that's, that's pretty organized. That's pretty intelligent. <laughs> you know, mate, that's a, that's a full-blown business right there, you know, mm-hmm. organized call centers and this whole customer service element to ransomware. So, you know, there's, there's definitely been a natural maturation in terms of where the sophistication of threats have come from in the past. And I think that has to do with the fact that technology is always advancing and there's new technologies to leverage from a malicious perspective. And but back to the point before, by the same token, it can also be very easy to be compromised. I know that there are many instances where I've uh, had the inconvenience of having to change my password every (laughs) 60 days. And it's so like, oh, I have to think of another clever thing to do and a clever thing to to put in. And and then I have to, I get all these like notifications uh, from my uh, devices saying that oh well you know this particular website has been compromised or your password's too simple make it more complex i can already see that um for someone like myself who's into technology this is quite overwhelming and there's there's a lot to deal with so it's so it it's so i guess the pressures on the individual um to try and keep up and keep passwords different different across you know hundreds of different websites and logins, um, and then in, and if if any, if I come across a text message, I need to be vigilant to make sure that I'm not responding yeah. to it or yeah. anything like that. And my credit card company will call me occasionally and goes, you know, your credit card's been compromised. We've got, we'll send you a new one. So there's there's so many elements and so many, I guess, things to juggle as an individual. What do, what is your advice for for I guess individuals who who need to be more cybersecurity aware um, and and they can you know they if they feel like they're not uh, they, they feel vulnerable in these cases in instances like this what can they do to better their position just log off and don't ever come back to tech <laughs> <laughs> you know there's, there's a bit of a movement there because uh, I was just reading something about dumb phones where people are going back to those so just calls and text messages nothing more totally. I mean, it sounds pretty appealing to me, to be honest. <laughs> I was uh, doing a bit of doom scrolling this morning. I was guilty of that. Uh, that's when I went. Ironically, that's where I came across an article saying, well, maybe you should think about a dumb phone. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. I mean, going back to the prosumer life and getting a nice estate in a regional part of the world and switching off from tech, is, it's it's definitely an option in the future. <laughs> I, think I like it. a nice life. I like it. I like it. I'll Let's definitely do that. Let's before we get there, Sandy. Yeah. We'll spend some awareness. But this will be a whole this will be a whole different podcast then. Yeah. Living exactly. in the country. Yeah. 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 But back to your question. Certainly, I think as a practitioner, you want you want cybersecurity to be an enabler for people. You don't want it you want it to be frictionless, right? Because it's very easy to get frustrated with tech and all the logins and it becomes overwhelming and you just want to flip the table and not ever come back to it. Sort of to the joke before. But if I'm offering up advice to people, it would certainly be firstly to lean in and become curious about how to better safeguard yourself in the digital world because you think about almost this psychosocial impact to yourself and your community if you do get compromised or if you do lose money. That's a very emotional experience and it's 
quite traumatic in a lot of senses. So it's really important to be curious about being safe online. There's some really good advice out of the Australian Cybersecurity Center, particularly for small and medium businesses, for enterprises, for users. You should really look at enabling things like multi-factor authentication. And almost the the twin sister to that is single sign-on, right? And it solves the password problem. I do not like managing my own passwords and I'm a cybersecurity practitioner. So (laughs) there's a whole thing there, absolutely. But you know, we need to be using technology to augment our own capabilities. That's what technology should always be about, advancing humanity. But we need to make sure that we are living very fruitfully with it and it not be, an, not be a deterrent to anything that we're doing. So if we can keep it simple, you know, looking at something like those measures to better manage access into the digital environment, corporate or personal or otherwise, that's, that's going to be a, a really, really good starting place. And I would also say that, you know, there's even emerging technologies that are enabling way better authentication or measures to be protected when accessing in digital environments. And only just last week I had Bo Tid up in Queensland. Shout out to Bo. He's, uh, you know, reach out to him if this is of interest to you. But, you know, he was actually showing me this access control where, you know, the technology is underpinned by bi-directional authentication. And so you point your phone at a QR code to get the login or even it encrypts the document. And you can only access that measure because of your unique device. There's technology that underpins that two-way authentication. And I think those type of emerging technologies take the security to the next level. But again, there's definitely a big spectrum in terms of adoption different security postures, different technological environments, different user awareness. And it's really interesting because then you just have this amazing mind map of how many different variables are there. But if we can keep it simple, and absolutely we should keep security simple because we've done a really good job at overcomplicating it and making it very confronting almost, you know, I think the better. We'll get a, an opportunity to talk about some emerging technology and problems that we we can solve that we potentially don't are about to experience going forward given how the trajectory of our um, advancements coming along the I guess the if you if you flip the coin a little and, and try and understand why uh, there are people out there who want to prey on um, security or cybersecurity specifically, I guess the, the the question I have in my mind is what what's their motivator? I mean, obviously, money being a big part of it, but not everybody does it for for a, a monetary gain. There are others who do it for for other reasons, and I'd love to to kind of get into the mind of a, of somebody on the other end, other side, and and you know, what does that look like from from your experience? Yeah, it's a great question, Sandeep, and this is what's so interesting about cybersecurity to me personally because. Motivations vary so much between an adversarial hacker versus defender sort of arena, right? Because there's really three main reasons why someone would want to hack or compromise a system or an environment. And a big one is monetary gain. We see that in ransomware. We see that in compromises where there's usually like a, you know, I'll I'll give you back your encrypted files if you pay this $2 million fee, right? That's a very simple and well-known use case around security and and hackers. 
The other one is espionage. So you're looking at spying on corporate environments and and usually for a motivation to steal trade secrets, intellectual property and data, right? So you're spying on an environment, you're getting into the environment to actually for the theft of IP. Mm -hmm. I think the third one and the most interesting one is purely ideological. And this is almost where the psychological phenomenon comes into play. This is where you know, the, the neurological wiring and our differences in the way everybody thinks and behaves is so interesting. Age-old debates about what is consciousness and, you know, fields of research around how the human mind works. But bringing it back to the ideological motivation behind hackers, someone could be a billionaire or multimillionaire, already have a lot of money and still look to hack an environment. But that's because of the that's because of the neurological motivation and, and the motivation born out of an ideological motive, which is usually thrill-seeking behavior or it's ego. So I would say those are the three big ones. Probably more sophisticated, more organized actors would be on that far right end of the spectrum around ide- ideologies and, and egos. And in fact, Sandeep, I was telling you just before we started to record this that. On the Dark Mode podcast, we actually had Mark T. Hoffman on the on as a guest, and he's really known as a crime and intelligence analyst, and he does all sorts of research on the motivations associated with cybercrime. And he speaks a lot about psychopathy, and he speaks a lot about the fact that those motivations, exactly what we're speaking out, really the most powerful one, if you say, is the motivation out of I ideology and and usually the ego and so far as to mark telling us on the last episode that he he has a call to action for anyone that is a black hat hacker doing the wrong thing online to come and find him and find a way to connect with him because he sits down and have has coffees with these people and he said a lot of the time it's it's an ego thing you know sometimes they're neurodiverse as well potentially on the spectrum and that sort of thing and a lot of the time they don't have the ability to feel emotions or they have sort of this cold empathy. Mm-hmm. So it's a really interesting triangulation when you look at the fact that a lot of things that are happening on the dark web or in a cybercrime perspective or in big breaches and compromises, these people think very differently and it's out of a very different motivation other than just money a lot of the time. See, that's what makes cybersecurity so such a diverse and, and almost a, a difficult field to, to get on top of because of this, because of just the, uh, the diversity of the root causes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, very Because if, if, yeah. if we knew uh, it was money, we could get to that. If we knew it was espionage, perhaps we could get to that. And, and if we knew it was simply ideology, then we could get, but it's a combination of the three or any, any sort of uh, um, a subset of these that makes it so broad and uh, difficult. And that's why I guess organizations, individuals, there's, there's so many campaigns that um, target individuals, the g- government's always um, putting out ads and so on, you know, informing people, reminding people, I get lots of training, monthly yep. training, 
they're very cheesy videos that we have to watch online, but you know, they, they, they bring up a good point um, about the individuals, but also the, there's the, the, the macro effect of um, cybersecurity and organizations pumping a lot of money into keeping cybersecurity um, active as an active function in the organization as a defense mechanism. And, it almost feels as though it would be so good to just go to these the hackers um, and say, well, why don't you put your skills for good in good use and come work with us or something like that? And and that, as I understand, also does happen. But I think it's it's just remarkable that um, we're trying to solve something that's both objective and, and intangible at the same time. Totally, yeah, and that's why I find it so interesting. And it's always going to be in a state of flux. You know, as soon as you solve for one thing in a, in a defensive mechanism, you know, a new threat emerges, a new, a new means of compromise emerges because that's, it's absolutely an extension of, the, of, of human psychology, right? Sort of outthinking and outpacing and therefore cybersecurity is always going to be in a state of flux. Can you tell us a little bit more about what your experience has been from a from I guess from a human centric perspective what have you come across what kind of stories have you encountered and what kind of instances have you um, been involved in where you thought oh yeah the root cause is a human um, centric problem and um, here's how we solve it yeah there's perhaps the best place to start is just taking what we were just speaking about Sandeep which is you know the concept of a white hat hacker versus a black hat is basically white hats, as the story goes, hack for good, right? They're, they're defenders. You know, they're, they're using their skills for greater good. They might be a practitioner, you know, working for a large cybersecurity technology company and, and employing those skills in a technical sense. The black hats, yeah, are the ones that are the hackers. They're the ones doing the bad things, compromising systems and having their own greedy financial or ideological gains out of their skill sets. But the lines are very blurred because n- never in life can we ever look at something and say it's black and white, right? I think that's a pretty fair statement. <laughs> true, true. So then our industry said, okay, well, we'll put grey in the middle and we'll have white, grey and black hats. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, that's, that's probably a better representation, but we actually need to think about it on a big spectrum again because a bit, one of the most interesting stories recently that I'd like to share is someone who was a black hat, Bastian Treptel, you can search him online. He was a convicted criminal in his teenage years because he was, he was basically stealing credit card information and, and compromising systems and having that monetary gain. So he's a black hat hacker, right? Lo and behold, he learns from his mistakes and he comes over to the good side and he starts his own cybersecurity consultancy firm, which is providing these amazing services to corporates to understand that exact adversarial mindset and nature of what it means to be a hacker, no better than to learn from a hacker himself. <laughs> and so therefore, he's arguably come over to the white hat side, right? He's chosen to employ his skills for the good. That's a good use case. That's a really good story to tell because we need more people making that switch. I guess the, the, the lessons of, of, of how hacking and how cybersecurity uh, issues are addressed by somebody who's a 
who's been on the other side makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But how do we, I just, how do we know for sure he's come to the, to the white side? <laughs> Maybe you have to ask him. Well, you know, there's probably a lot of factors in there. Just like in life, it's a big journey, but he's got a family yeah. now. You know, I don't think he would want to be incarcerated with young kids, you know, that sort of thing. So also intelligence agencies and, and law enforcement is getting better and better and better every day and week. And so the repercussions for this sort of stuff is very, it's on a grand scale now. And you've got big communities that are choosing to do the right thing. The right thing, but what I actually think it comes down to is, we actually all individually need to make a choice in life, whether we go down that path of brilliance and choose to do things for for the good, the greater good of society, and these type of things, or otherwise. But unfortunately, some people, and this is why things like true crime is so interesting. This is why we have law enforcement. This is why we have governance and. You know, we want to contribute to a to a better outcome in society as a collective. But this is why it's really interesting from a psychological perspective and even some of those earlier stories I told is because sometimes people only ever identify with crime. You know, sometimes people grow up in low socioeconomic environments or, the, or actually even on the contrary, in high socioeconomic environments, but out of purely the way that they're their brain works, the way they think and what their motivations are, they choose to do the wrong thing. But but that's why I think the psychological phenomenon is so interesting and that human-centric element is so important to understand in life in general, but particularly in the digital realm now with so much noise and so much sophistication and so many new technologies and it being so variable. But, yeah, you can never know, I suppose. And and I guess that's a good time to ask the question of what a grey hat hacker looks like. Because how do you, how is it how, what at what point is it difficult to discern if it's good or bad? Well, exactly. Yeah. Grey hat's fundamentally saying that you have the ability to sort of tiptoe, you know, between between the white and to and, and to black, sort of in a big concept sense. But you very much blur the lines from an ethical point of view then. Ethics and values have to come into this all the time because people are choosing to to to, to act a certain way and behave a certain way. And that's why that concept of grey hat was introduced because it wasn't just black and white. But you know, if you have skill sets in hacking, you need to choose to do use your skill sets for the right thing. Just like because I can break into a house doesn't mean I'm going to do that, right? That that is true. That's a that's a great way to put it. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. But I was also I was also interested to understand um, from your perspective the, I guess the the security technologies that that you think are coming along down the track. Um, recently, Apple uh, introduced a way to authenticate by using a um, key that sits in your in, in the mobile device and one that sits on the cloud, so a public key and a private key. And that's, I guess, one way to get rid of passwords and all, you know, a point of failure, which oh, yeah. I think is very interesting yep. and also goes against our uh, ideal uh, lifestyle going forward with, with a very basic phone in the country. Perhaps that might not make sense, but... <laughs> But if I if I were to bring it back a little bit closer and we had, you know, most of us have smartphones, we're able to do authentication using biometrics and and uh, and, an, and, a, and a public key. Is this 
is is this a technology that that we're exploring here in Australia, and also what other emerging technologies have you have you come across? Yeah, we definitely are. I mean, I actually gave a similar example just before Sandeep around that bi-directional authentication, and you know the, what comes to my mind is just even in biometrics. That's a really new field in terms of security measures. If you think about instead of using a password, you just scan the finger. I mean, that's technology that's around today, but that could also emerge and advance and go to another level. Maybe maybe eye recognition or facial recognition, and therefore you achieve that level of authentication. Um, and then even just like how technologies are replicating things like behavioral analytics online or in the digital sphere. So if you look at even some of the security measures that are coming to fruition now are just understanding the behavioral keystrokes on a keyboard, right? So if myself as Gabe Mazzano has a certain way of typing because of the patterns in the way that my, that, you know, the mechanisms in my hand work, <laughs> mm-hmm. if I'm a user and my identity is online, but that those keystrokes are vastly different. I mean, it could be a Friday night and it's happy hour or something, but <laughs> though I don't drink, so it wouldn't be the case. That could be a way to actually understand the behavioral analytical side of technologies in a digital world. So that, that's emerging, that, that's here now. And, even in, and that's even used in, in things like that, the, you know, the traffic analysis and what's happening in, in a security posture sense for organizations, that technology is available to be deployed. Um, what else? So, so, what, what I, so the way I understand it, that takes a, a very proactive approach to security. So basically yeah. we're in a position where we can harness data to identify trends or decisions that are very unusual um, and then or unusual patterns in this, in this large, vast uh, data collection exercise. And if, if, if we do come across something like that, it alerts, it says this is an anomaly yeah, uh, and then something needs to happen, um, and therefore we could p- potentially prevent uh, issues from occurring. I know that in in I guess the most basic sort of user perspective would be when you try and log into your Gmail, for example, from a new computer. It it immediately puts up a a few authentication uh, questions and and then alerts you on your email that someone you have logged on from an unusual device. But obviously, this is very basic. Mm. Um, this continues to, but I like the fact that um, the proactive side of security uh, by observing unusual trends is, um, you know, that that it is very much in line with what artificial intelligence and um, uh, machine learning, to a large extent, actually, you know, tries to do in in many instances. I'm glad that it's um, it's seeing light of day in the uh, cybersecurity world. Yeah, exactly. I think anything that's emerging in, in terms of just big tech trends is applied to security because security is to be ubiquitous and needs to apply to everything. We all want to feel safe in our communities in person or online. So anything that's advancing from a technological perspective, I guarantee you will be used for the wrong reasons. And therefore, we need to adopt it and move quickly to ensure it's used for all the right reasons in protecting our communities. So I think another example I'd like to offer up as well, Sandeep, is just even around like just back to automation and like orchestration technologies because you think about the fact that in like a security operations center or, 
you know, an operational environment where you're making sure the lights are kept on and you're looking at the users, there's still people that are sitting behind and oper- operationalizing that technology. And so, you, you know, for better security measures, you want to bring in automation at, to do those mundane tasks and to triage different alerts if something anomalous has occurred and to ensure that authentication is there. So there's an element of that as well. What are your thoughts on uh, security in the metaverse? Yeah, I mean, meta is like a massive advancement to VR and AR technologies. I think the way that our neurological wiring will fundamentally change the more we spend, you know, with the VR headset on <laughs> and immersing ourselves in in the metaverse. But yeah, I mean that's that's fraught with a whole new topic around what, what it actually looks like and where it's heading. I would imagine that things like privacy are a big uh, part of the whole mix. I'd also like to see, or well, not like to, but I, w- I guess I would. I would also imagine that all the perils of being online in the sort of the Web 1.0 and Web 2.0 as I, I think it'll just get. The, the challenges will get bigger. Um, yeah. and, and certainly with the metaverse, um, the getting online experience will be a whole, will be different. Um, there are companies out there that are putting a lot of, uh, some companies out there putting emphasis on privacy. Others want to know everything about you before you get onto the metaverse. And both, both approaches are very controversial in their own, mm. um, I guess, own right. And, and I guess the my, my perspective is that the the metaverse seems like a big. It, it's to me and you who we're comf- we we come from a technology space. For us, it's you know it's going to evolve from a VR AR perspective. But for a lot of other people, they're very concerned about this next, I guess, generation of uh, interaction, and and security and specifically cybersecurity, privacy, all those co- um, components will be front and center and will almost be the reason why this technology succeeds or fails if it doesn't do well. Because I, you know, right now, as you know, um, if you buy the Oculus headset, you, you have to log in with your Facebook account. Mm. And uh, in, in most instances, you actually have to do if you want, if you want to put in, if you want to get an orientation um, of your surroundings, you actually have to turn the camera on and let the headset scan your area around you. So, you, you know, here here we are at this at this interesting spot where it's going to get very very quickly. We're going to find that uh, us as individuals, we need we need to be clear about what it is that we're signing up for and. What is it that we're getting into? Because I would not, I would imagine that it's inevitable we'll get into the metaverse environment, but security and privacy needs to be definitely front and center. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And in fact, I concur with the, with the statement you made around privacy and regulation and human rights at the core of it will be the reason it succeeds or fails for sure. So there's a lot of movement around just advancing human rights in, in the digital realm as well. I'm reading Susie Allegra's book at the moment, which is called Freedom to Think. She only released that a couple of months ago in 2022. And it actually talks about this whole thing, privacy in the digital age. We've got to actually make sure that 
we're enforcing the right behaviors. We're taking away the autonomy from big tech to do whatever they want with our data, you know, manipulating young minds and this sort of thing. We've got to make sure that privacy and, and security is at the heart of these big, big emerging tectonic shifts in technology. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I'm 100% behind getting it right because, like I said, the uh, technology itself is absolutely um, amazing. It'll, it, And the way I see it is that it gives an opportunity for those who didn't have those opportunities um, an avenue to, to, to contribute to our betterment. Mm. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm an internal optimist. I'm not sure if I mentioned, yeah. but that's, that's how I, I see good in people. And maybe I, I won't do well in a cybersecurity role, but I see just, <laughs> I, I suppose, uh, I, you know, when I look, I see intent there's out there and I see opportunities for those who are at this point, not able to engage um, with the, with the trends, with the, with where the action happens, so to speak. And, and now we'll have with the metaverse, we'll have access to a lot more talent around the world will have a, access to a, definitely a lot more cultural experiences that it will hopefully bring our world a little bit closer. But with that, with anything like that, um, it, it brings about its own set of dangers. And in the, I suppose, uh, and watch outs, uh, as mentioned earlier, I suppose even with when they uh, invented ships to go from one country to another, that in its own right brought a whole bunch of security challenges yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, from then on the planes and, and now the internet, you know, it's, 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 it's an inevitable and, and, and it will continue to evolve. But Let's... I'm, I'm optimistic that will be, we'll, that we as a human, human race will do, we'll do the right thing, even though we stumble to get there. Yeah. We'll do yeah. the right thing. Yeah. Nothing like a hand on the hot stove either. Right. We'll make a few mistakes and, and we'll work out how to do the right thing, but I am a mindless optimist as well, Sandeep, and I agree. You know, we'll do the right thing, we'll figure it out. And if we take an optimistic approach, it's going to help us to get there, the way we think about it and the way we use it. Gabe, look, we'll finish up there. It's great to have you on the podcast. Some great insights. Good to know hackers um, have a conscience too at times (laughs) (laughs) and their their, uh, craft can be used for good. But most of all, such such a pleasure talking to you, getting to know you a bit better and getting to know your background and what motivates you in the world of cybersecurity. I'm so glad that our nation has people who are thinking about technology and from a human perspective to solve these problems. Yeah, been a pleasure, Sandeep. Thank you so much for having me on. 